Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 19, and verses 1 through 10, and that can be found on page 878. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Would you pray with me? Father, we come now to this word that you've given to us. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark, that you've given us the word of Christ so that we may know your son, not just know how he was in this story, but so that we might now know who he is now, who he is for us. Give us grace this morning. Help me as I preach and help this congregation as they listen. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Who's in and who's out? It can be difficult to predict who will be in and who will be out when you're looking at something. I, I saw this when I was a music major in college. Some of you know I was a music major in college. Jumping into a music program at the collegiate level as a freshman is, is often a very bumpy experience. It's a big adjustment to get used to the solitary hours spent in the practice room, working with your instrument, the mini ensemble rehearsals, trying to master the theoretical knowledge and the technical skills. Inevitably, many freshman music majors would switch programs by the end of the year. And after I myself had survived that first year, It was always interesting to me to watch an incoming group of freshmen and try to discern who, by the end of the year, would still be in and who would be out. It was interesting because it was not as simple as asking who the best musicians were. In fact, as often as not, the most talented musicians, the ones you think would have the best shot, were the ones who'd be out by the end of the year. And sometimes the ones who had the least apparent talent were the ones who'd persevere and attain the greatest growth. I'm guessing you've had similar experiences in your own life, whether it's at at work. The person with the best background and resume doesn't always get to the highest level. It's not always the most talented or athletic person who gets the spot on the team. Determining who's in and who's out is often more surprising than that. In the Gospel of Luke... Jesus is helping his followers think through this very thing in relation to his kingdom. Who will be in and who will be out? 
And this has a lot more significance than a music program, than a job, than a sports team. We're talking here about who will enjoy eternal life and joy forever. So who will be in the kingdom and who will be out? Do you know? Perhaps better said, who does Jesus find and bring into his kingdom? And who does Jesus reject? And what does it look like for those who are in his kingdom, who will be found in his kingdom, to live like it until he comes again? Well, let's find out together from the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Now, before we start into our text this morning, it's important for you to know that we're about to turn a very significant corner in the Gospel of Luke. If you've been with us on these Sunday mornings in this sermon series, you know that we've been walking with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. All along, he's been teaching us about his coming kingdom. And all along, we've seen that teaching about the kingdom accepted by some individuals, outcasts, the poor, humble folks, But by and large, Jesus' teaching has been rejected by his own people, the Jewish nation. In fact, if you've got a bulletin and you have the bulletin outline, if you flip it over, you can see in this overview where we are this morning. If you look at Roman numeral 3, which is labeled salvation accomplished through Christ's words and deeds, we've been spending this whole fall and winter under Roman numeral 3, letter B, (laughs) His kingdom teaching rejected. And we're ending that section today. So right before Jesus enters Jerusalem and that rejection reaches its fulfillment in his crucifixion, we're given another dose of kingdom teaching. Last week we saw that it is the humble who receive Jesus' mercy who enter the kingdom. Now we're given another individual story and a parable to show us who's in this kingdom and who's out. And as with so many of the stories and parables Jesus has given us, the answer to that question is meant to surprise us. So first, who's in? Well, Jesus has just arrived in Jericho. He's about 17 miles from Jerusalem, so he's getting very close. And we meet a man named Zacchaeus. Now, again, if you've been with us in this series in Luke, I wonder if when you heard this description of Zacchaeus, all kinds of light bulbs were going off in your head. Why do I say that? Because look at how Zacchaeus is described in verse 2. He was a chief tax collector. Now, this is not the first time we've seen a tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, they've been showing up all over the place. Tax collectors have been often found around Jesus, and they're always viewed negatively by Jesus' opponents, the Jewish leaders. I want you to see both of those things. They're often around Jesus, and they're always viewed negatively by the crowds, by the religious leaders. Way back in chapter 5, Jesus called a tax collector to follow him, a guy named Levi. And the Pharisees and the scribes at that time grumbled, and they said this. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, tax collectors and sinners are synonymous terms. And the Pharisees weren't happy about Jesus' association with them. That's chapter 5, verse 30. In chapter 15, the first two verses, it says that tax collectors and sinners We're all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, tax collectors are drawing near to Jesus. And again, it's tax collectors and sinners. They're paired together. And again, the Jewish leaders are not happy about it. Just last week, we heard Jesus tell a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. 
the Pharisee got, said, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So tax collectors are, again, linked with sinners, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And why is that? Why are they so despised? We've talked about this before, but it's easy to forget. Sometimes I think we hear tax collectors and we think, yeah, I wouldn't like tax collectors either. The IRS drives me crazy. But that really misses the issue here. Tax collectors in Israel at this time were not unpopular just because they collected taxes. They collected taxes on behalf of the occupying Romans, the occupying imperial power. To be a tax collector was to sign up with God's enemies to oppress your own people. And what's more, as we've seen, the way tax collectors made their money was by charging additional fees above the tax required by Rome. The Romans didn't care how, how much you skimmed off the top necessarily as long as you got what they needed. So tax collectors were in league with the bad guys, and they were using their authority from the bad guys to take advantage of their fellow Israelites. It's not hard to see why they were despised, why they were social outcasts. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That's like saying he's the best of the worst. He was able to skim off even more than the average tax collector. It also means he was likely more despised than the average tax collector. In fact, when you read tax collector, you should think in your mind, outcast. So when you read chief tax collector, you should think chief sinner, chief outcast. He's a social pariah. Now, on the one hand, if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Luke, you know it's exactly these kind of people that Jesus came to save. Not the healthy, but the sick. It's the humble outcast that Jesus raises up. But notice how else he's described. It says he's a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, of course, that makes sense. He's a tax collector. Of course, he's going to be rich. Why do you think he got in the business? But in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen a lot of rich folks, haven't we? And they rarely make it into the kingdom, right? Think of the man who built bigger barns back in chapter 12. God calls him a fool. Or think of the rich man and Lazarus. His lack of faith was, was revealed by his failure to use his immense wealth to serve his, his fellow suffering neighbor. And just last week, we saw a rich, young ruler unable to follow Jesus because he would not let go of his wealth. Jesus said it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And here's Zacchaeus. Will wealth be a stumbling block for him? Will he be among the humble sinners who comes to Jesus? Or will he, like the rest of the wealthy, go away sad? Well, we immediately get a hint which way he'll go because Zacchaeus is eager to see Jesus. Like so many others in Israel at this time, he's heard what Jesus could do and he wants to have a look. Now, Zacchaeus has a logistical problem. <laughs> it's probably the thing he's most famous for, right? I wonder how many of you know the song. I've been polling people this week and it's still a very well-known song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. We thought about doing that as the hymn of preparation this morning and <laughs> decided against it. He is small in stature, the ESV so nicely puts it. But Zacchaeus will not be deterred. It's very much like the blind man we saw last week. Do you remember him? He wanted to see Jesus as well, but the crowds got in his way. But he wasn't deterred. He just called out louder. 
very uncouth behavior. But he's not worried about what others think. Now the crowds are in the way of Zacchaeus, but he's not deterred. He runs ahead and climbs a sycamore tree. Very unusual behavior for a man who's a chief tax collector and a man of that position. But he's not worried what others will think. And when Jesus arrives, something really surprising happens. Jesus stops, looks up at Zacchaeus, and addresses him as though this whole thing was planned. Like it was prearranged. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, I must stay at your house today. Keep in mind, this is likely a tumultuous scene. There are large crowds surrounding Jesus. That's why Zacchaeus has to climb up in a tree. They're in a city. They're in Jericho, a large city. There's a lot of hustle and bustle. In the midst of all that, Jesus spots a seemingly random little guy in a tree, and he calls him by name and says essentially, oh good, you're here. Come down quickly. I have an appointment at your house. And we're reminded again that Jesus is no ordinary wandering teacher. He's the Lord. This is an appointment orchestrated by God, and now God has come to meet the appointment. Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, but in fact, it's really Jesus who is doing the seeking and the finding. He invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. He says, I welcome the outcast. I eat with tax collectors and sinners, and I want to eat with you. Hurry, come down, come quickly. I must go to your house. So what will Zacchaeus do with the invitation? Will he come to Jesus' banquet, or will he excuse himself? Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus comes down. He accepts the invitation. He receives him joyfully. Here that means he went with Jesus to his own home. He welcomed him in. Now in verse 7 it says that when they saw it, they all grumbled. And we don't even have to wonder who the they is. (laughs) We've heard this complaint before, haven't we? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is Pharisee talk. This is religious leader talk. This is older brother talk, if you think of the prodigal son. This is the exact same complaint lodged against Jesus back in chapter 5 and again in chapter 15. Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus has been received gladly by this Gentile-like traitor. But the the identity of of Zacchaeus as a sinner, as an extortioner, that label is about to become obsolete because in verse 8, we see that receiving Jesus has already transformed him. He stands up, presumably in his own home, maybe around the dinner table, and he says this, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So Zacchaeus is a changed man. The whole reason you become a tax collector is because you love money, right? You want more money, you take the job with all its negative connotations so that you can become wealthy and not care what anybody thinks about you. But Zacchaeus has just announced a plan to utilize his immense wealth. Half of his goods, half of everything he has, he gives away to poor Israelites, to his neighbors in need. And he uses his money to make restitution to those he's defrauded. That is, the people that he took more from as a tax collector than he actually was required to take, 
he pays them back. And he's not just paying back what he's defrauded. He's paying back four times what he took. This is the percentage called for under the law when an animal was willfully stolen and killed. You restored the animal and you restored four additional animals. Now you'd have to think, as a chief tax collector, the list of folks that he's defrauded is pretty long, right? But Zacchaeus says, I am that kind of thief. And he publicly declares, so he can't get off the hook now, he will make every wrong right. Now what's happened here? How has Zacchaeus, the lover of money, become a man who's giving away his goods and restoring what he stole fourfold? Well, he's received Jesus. Not just into his home, but as the treasure of his heart. And he's willing to leave everything for the sake of having him. Jesus said last week that everyone who abandons all for the sake of the kingdom will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And Zacchaeus believes this. And if you weren't convinced, Jesus confirms it in verse 9. He says, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. So Zacchaeus has received salvation since he has shown that he's a son of Abraham. But why does Jesus say it that way, since he also is a son of Abraham? Well, it's because Zacchaeus might have been an Israelite, but he certainly didn't look like one. He was lined up with the Romans. He was, by the standards of his kinsmen, unclean, as good as a Gentile, far from God. But in receiving Jesus, he's proven to be a real son of Abraham, a real citizen of the kingdom. He received the king, the Lord, the Messiah, the true seed of Abraham. So amazingly, surprisingly, Zacchaeus is in. He will inherit the kingdom. Now, how did that happen? How, did, how is it that one that seems so far off could make it in? Jesus tells us in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How did this far-off sinner get salvation? Jesus says, because that's what I do. I find lost sinners and I totally transform their lives. I go out to the highways and the hedges and I compel poor people to come in and eat from my banquet table. I find lost coins. I find lost sheep. I find lost prodigal sons and I rejoice over them with all of heaven. I find sick people and I make them well as a good physician. I call tax collectors and I make them into generous givers. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, some of you here this morning are actually lost in exactly the same way as Zacchaeus. You are far from God right now, and you're far from God right now for the exact same reason that Zacchaeus was, because of your sin. What do I mean by sin? I mean your failure to love God and your failure to love God others out of that love for God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that demonstrates itself in lots of ways in your life. For Zacchaeus, that looked like extorting and oppressing other people by taking more money from them than he was entitled to. He was a thief. That was his obvious sin, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem underneath all that was that he loved money 
Money ruled him as his God. Now, I don't know how that shows up in your life. I don't know how you mistreat others, how selfishness, how unkindness manifests itself, but I know that they do. And underneath all of that, underneath the selfishness and the mess of broken relationships is something that you love above everything. And it's not God, it's not His Son, Jesus Christ. So you're lost. You're lost. You may be happy in your sin, but you are far from God and you will remain far from God because the just penalty for your sin is to be cast away, lost forever from God in the fires and the agony of hell. But the remarkable thing about knowing that you're as lost as Zacchaeus was is that it's people lost like Zacchaeus that Jesus finds. He still does that. He went to the cross, suffering, bleeding, dying to remove the punishment of hell for those who trust in him. That's what he's getting ready to do in this very story. In his sights, he's got Jerusalem and a barren place just outside of it where he will die a brutal death on the cross. He does that to seek and to find sinners like you. So I don't know what brought you here this morning. If you're not a Christian, I'm not sure what you thought you might see or what you thought you might hear, but I do know this. Right now, Jesus is offering the same thing to you that he offered to Zacchaeus. Right now, Jesus is offering that to you. This is not just some story in the past. The Savior, Jesus, in his great mercy, is calling to you also through this inspired word. He's saying, hurry, hurry. Come to me, leave your sins behind, and I will transform you by my grace. So the question is, will you receive him? Will you receive him joyfully? So who's in the kingdom, according to Jesus? It's the lost sinner who Jesus finds, who responds to his call with humility. They receive him gladly, and he transforms them. But what about those who don't receive him gladly? Those who actually grumbled at his mercy to Zacchaeus. What becomes of them? Well, the next parable helps answer that question. So now let's look at the next section. Look first at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So stop there and just note that Jesus begins to tell a parable to those who heard these things. He means those who heard his announcement of salvation for Zacchaeus. He tells this crowd a parable because being in Jericho, he's very close to Jerusalem now, and he's aware that there are those in this crowd who expect the kingdom of God to come in power right away as soon as he enters Jerusalem. As we'll see Next week, his perception is is absolutely right. The crowds are expecting Jesus to take the throne and begin an earthly kingdom that overthrows the Romans. But Jesus' kingdom will not unfold that way. In fact, he's just told his disciples in chapter 18 that he's going to go to Jerusalem to be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. He will ascend to heaven and return to bring the kingdom to fulfillment. So he wants to reset their expectations for what's about to happen in Jerusalem 
And he wants to focus their attention again on what they've just seen in Zacchaeus. What matters for getting salvation, for entering the kingdom, is not his arrival in Jerusalem, but how they, this crowd who heard these things, receives him. So let's look at the parable, beginning in in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Stop there for a minute. So you you have this man of noble birth, a nobleman. He's going away to inherit a kingdom, to be made king, and then return as the king. And he gives ten minas to his ten servants. Now, your Bible may have a footnote there telling you the, the value of a mina, it's about three or four months' wages. It's, about, it's the amount of money you would earn in a third or a quarter of a year. So it's a good chunk of cash. It's not a crazy amount of money, but it's a good chunk of cash. The nobleman's instructions are for his servants to use the capital he's given them to generate more wealth in his absence. But the plot thickens in verse 14 when we find out the citizens of the nobleman's land, his, his home country, they hate him. And they send a delegation after him while he's gone to say, stay away. They don't want him to come back and rule. So you have two things going on simultaneously in this story. You have servants stewarding the nobleman's money, and you have citizens who do not want the nobleman's rule. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's see what happens when he returns. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So just pause here again. He's no longer a nobleman now. Now he's received the kingdom. He's a king. Verse 16. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Now just pause there again because this Part of the story, I think, is fairly straightforward. The first two servants steward the money in such a way that it yields more. Different amounts, but that's not the point. The point is they were faithful. They did what was asked. And so he gives them something even greater, authority over cities. He's the king, and he's saying, you were faithful with this relatively small amount of money. Now I'm going to give you a massive claim in my kingdom. It's a disproportionate reward for the faithfulness that they've rendered. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now pause again. Is what the third servant has said about the nobleman true? Is he a severe man? He says he takes what he did not deposit and reaps what he did not sow. That's a way of saying that the nobleman is unfair in his practices and his expectations. He's a stingy miser. He's an Ebenezer Scrooge. He expects his servants to do all the work for him, and he's going to take all the reward. Now, is that true based on what we've seen? No. The first two servants from the same amount of money, yield different results. And what's the response from the nobleman? He doesn't abraid the second servant. He rewards them both spectacularly. In exchange for their faithful service, he gives them a share in his kingdom. 
But because this third servant views his master as stingy and grudging, his service is stingy and grudging. He did nothing. He merely hid the money away. So let's read the nobleman's response. Verse 22. He said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Well, that's a very good question. He says, did you really think I was such a stingy, tight-fisted guy? Then why on earth didn't you at least just put it in the bank to gain interest? So now the king announces judgment, not just on the wicked servant, but look at verse 24. He includes the citizens from the beginning as well. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The wicked servant has his money taken away and given to the first servant because, as he explains, the one who has, the one who has increased the wealth of the nobleman, will get more. They get rewarded. But the one who has not, the one who has failed to increase his wealth, even the wealth he has is taken away. And do you remember those citizens who hated the nobleman and said they didn't want him to reign over them? Now that he's in authority, he has those rebels brought to him and executed. So that's an interesting story. What on earth does this have to do with the coming kingdom? That's a question I've been asking myself. Let's start with the things that are clearest from this parable. First, remember that this parable is told to clarify a delay in the kingdom. That's what verse 11 says. So the story is about Jesus, identified with the nobleman, going into a far country before he returns as king. He's not going to become king when he arrives in Jerusalem, just around the corner. He's going to go away before he becomes king. And the crucial question is, who will reign with him? Who will be in this kingdom when the king comes in its fulfillment? Well, the Zacchaeus story ended with the announcement of his salvation. Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham. He's getting in the kingdom. But this parable emphasizes the, the alternate. It ends with an announcement of judgment on two groups. It's really showing who's out of the kingdom. So you have citizens, those from the nobleman's home country, who hate him and reject his rule. That description clearly has in its sights Jesus' fellow Israelites, especially its religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones most likely to be prepared to receive Jesus as king. They had the patriarchs. They had the law. They had every privilege. Yet week after week after week, we've seen here in this very gospel how they've doubted Jesus, how they've grumbled against Jesus, how they've maligned him. They do not want this nobleman, this Son of David with royal lineage, they do not want him to be king over them. And that continues in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends to heaven, after he goes into a faraway country. You can read all over the book of Acts how the Jewish people continue to reject Jesus as king. They persecute the apostles. They harass Paul in every city. Why? Because they do not want this man to rule over them. So what's the outcome for the Pharisees? What's the outcome for the nation of Israel? The citizens are shockingly killed. 
Do you remember back when Jesus taught about the coming of the Son of Man in judgment in chapter 17? We covered that probably three weeks ago. One of the things that made that passage so difficult to understand is that Jesus seemingly lumped together the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD with the final judgment to come at the end of the age. And that was because the horrific destruction that occurred in the year 70 AD is just a warning shot for the horrors that will come at the end of the age. The same is true here. The judgment Jesus describes in verse 27 begins on the nation in the year 70 AD, but it's just a foretaste of the judgment that comes when he comes as the great king to judge the living and the dead. The rejection of Messiah by his own people brings judgment in history and also everlasting judgment in the age to come. But there's another group in this parable, and that's the servants. And I think this has in its sights those who have close association with Jesus as one of his followers. He's speaking to people who we would identify as Christians today. They are the ones to whom Jesus has graciously given responsibilities in his service until he returns. He commands them to seek his kingdom, to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven, to pray for his return, to spread the message of his kingdom until he returns. Again, the emphasis on the parable is not the results, but on faithfulness. Jesus expects his servants to persevere in faithfully obeying him until he returns. And when he comes, the reward he gives is out of this world. We reign with him. Whatever we gave up in serving him, we receive many times over, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, Jesus says. But even among this group, the group of servants, there's a warning. The majority of the parable is not devoted actually to the faithful servants, but the third one, he's the one to watch. He doesn't obey the nobleman because it turns out he never really knew him. He thought he was a severe man, and so his service gets choked out by his wrong view. And so too for any supposed follower of Jesus who views him as a taskmaster, as a tyrant, as a killjoy. But of course, Jesus is no killjoy. He's no miser. He seeks and saves lost sinners, and then he goes to their house to throw a party that reflects the party going on in heaven. And when you see Jesus that way, rightly, then you're able to stand up like Zacchaeus and say, I'm using my money to right wrongs and to bless my brothers and sisters. But if you think Jesus is a stingy king, you will not serve him gladly. And so those supposed followers of Jesus who've not tasted his grace, who don't steward faithfully while they await his coming, will finally be rejected. They'll prove They never knew Jesus. So this parable is not teaching that if you spend your life doing your own thing, instead of living for Jesus' mission, that you'll just miss out on some special rewards. You'll miss out on getting to have some cities. That's that's not what's going on here. The, The third servant is called wicked. He's not given an inheritance in the kingdom. Even what he has was taken away from him. He has no share in the king. He never knew the king. So according to this parable, who is out of the kingdom? Well, surprisingly, it's some of the people who seem closest to it. The Jewish people, especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day, despite their knowledge, they've rejected the king. And even some of those who follow Jesus, or so it seems, despite being given some responsibilities, 
They've never known him. But those who in response to the grace and mercy of Jesus give themselves in service to him will be found in the kingdom. Even those who are as far off and as unlikely as Zacchaeus. Now, how do we benefit from this text? How do we make use of it? Well, I think the first and most obvious thing to do with a text like this is to be found in the kingdom, to receive Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I've already exhorted you to that, and I will exhort you again. Receive Jesus joyfully as Zacchaeus did. Receive him and serve him all your days until he comes. We see that those who reject Jesus in this parable, they don't actually escape his lordship. The images of the, of the citizens being brought before the king and slaughtered, that's meant to shake you out of your apathy. Something far worse awaits those who reject the king. And Jesus offers to save you now and transform you now. So come to him. Come to him. I also want to issue a warning here to anyone who names the name of Christ who claims to belong to Jesus, but yet your life evidences no obedience to Jesus. You say you follow him. Maybe you made a profession of faith. Maybe you were even baptized. Maybe you're a member of a church. Maybe you're a member of this church. But when you look at your life, there's no long-term pattern of doing the things Jesus tells his followers to do. You've been disconnected from his people from loving and serving them. You're not giving sacrificially to his church. There's no praying for his coming. There's no sharing of his message with others. It's not enough to claim to be a servant of Jesus. You must actually serve him. And so I want to warn you that if that's you, you are in a dangerous position because this parable says it's possible to be in Jesus' community, to be counted among his servants, and to find out in the end you never knew him. You never tasted his grace. You never experienced him personally. Now, I'm not saying that only those who have obeyed and served Jesus perfectly belong to him. It's only the servants who who do it perfectly. They're the ones who get in. That's not what I'm saying. We need mercy and grace. Zacchaeus shows us that. So it's not perfection at all. But as you look at your life over the long haul, do you see a pattern of slowly increasing generosity and service? If not, it may well be that you do not know Jesus. You've merely named him. You've merely associated with him. And if that's the case, the same call I just made goes to you. Receive him. He finds and saves lost sinners. Don't let your pride be what holds you back. He's a merciful Savior who will transform you into a generous giver. So follow him. Receive him. But what about those of you who who have received him? You do see in your life that you've, you've come to know him. You're serving him. You're awaiting his kingdom to come and fulfill in fullness, what do you do as you await his return? Here's how this text exhorts you. Continue receiving him as a gracious savior so that you will continue serving him until the end. Let me say that again. Continue receiving him as a gracious savior so that you will continue serving him until the end. Let me break that down. First, continue receiving him as a gracious savior. 
This text beckons us to continue joyfully receiving Jesus as a Savior who mercifully seeks and saves the lost. We're meant to marvel, brothers and sisters, at the personal mercy and grace of Christ right here. Don't allow the familiarity with the story, with the song, the Zacchaeus song that you know so well, cause you to rush past the personal display of mercy that Jesus shows here. He's no ordinary teacher. He is the Lord. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the Holy One of Israel. And this Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's made his money extorting God's covenant people. And everybody knows it, including him. He's far from the Lord, and that's what he deserves, to remain an outcast from the Lord. But here comes Jesus, and he does not pass him by. He looks at him, he calls to him, he invites him, come down, I must go to your house today. What mercy is this? What grace is this? A Savior who finds lost sinners and calls them to himself. And can you not, brother or sister, trace the details of your own story upon the story of Zacchaeus? His mercy towards you was no less personal. His call to you was no less particular. He came to you in the gospel. He called to you by His Holy Spirit. He invited you to receive Him and in receiving Him to find such rich grace that your whole life was turned upside down. Now some of you remember well just how lost you were when Jesus saved you. Sin dominated your life. The fact that you were far from God was no secret to you or to the people around you. Then one day, the gospel you heard, either for the first time or the hundredth time, became good news to you. You received Christ like Zacchaeus did. And like Zacchaeus, your life radically changed. And I'm saying that in the tender mercy extended to Zacchaeus, you should be reminded of that same mercy, that same tenderness that was extended to you. Now, others of you came to Christ in such a way that there wasn't much apparent or felt lostness. That's my testimony. I was saved as a kid, a young kid, through believing the gospel at one of the many gospel avenues at our church or, or at our home. Maybe it was Awana or Wednesday Night Explorers class or Sunday school or junior church or Sunday night or Bible time at home. There was a lot of gospel flying around. Somewhere in there, I repented and I believed it. And since I was young... I hadn't really worked my way up to chief tax collector yet. There were no scandalous sins, no obvious signs of lostness, no prodigal wandering in the wilderness. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But however apparent your lostness, the Bible assures us that the only people Jesus came to seek and to save were the lost. Jesus only saves those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. He only saves those who are by nature children of wrath, so that at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, all of our testimonies are the same. We were all poor, blind, lame, spiritual outcasts, lepers, tax collectors, and sinners, and thus each of us can know that our need of mercy and our experience of mercy, the experience of the mercy of Jesus was just as personal as Zacchaeus. Jesus came for you. 
Jesus found you. He bled and died to bring you back to God, to save you. So this text, I've said, it's useful in exhorting us to continue seeing him that way, as a gracious, merciful Savior, so that we will continue serving him until the end. I want to talk about the second part of that now, so that you will continue serving him until the end. It is the continual awareness of that mercy we just talked about, the mercy in Christ that will keep you generously stewarding what he's given you until he returns. It's Zacchaeus' rich experience of Jesus' mercy that transforms him to let go of his wealth. And that's also what we see in the first two servants. They live faithfully with what they've been given graciously by the king. But remember, it's the servant who loses sight of the nobleman's grace, who views him as a severe man. He's the one who's not marked by faithful service. No, he's paralyzed by the nobleman's severity. But it's not the nobleman who's stingy, it's the servant. It's counterintuitive because you'd think that the servant who viewed his king as harsh would work harder, right? But not so. He thinks the king is stingy, and so his service is stingy. And the same is true for you, Christian. In your service to Christ, as you await his return, you constantly need to have your mind filled with the rich grace and mercy of Christ so that you will serve him faithfully. You need to trust in his overwhelming generosity so that you may turn and continue being generous. Now, personally, personally, I find that I tend to be a very duty-driven person. It's easy for me to slide into just checking things off because it's what I've been asked to do and it's what needs to be done in the Christian life. Maybe you can relate to that. There's, there's a lot of great things about duty-driven people. They tend to get a lot done. They tend to be consistent. But as it relates to the Christian life, it can easily slip into viewing our Lord Jesus as, as a taskmaster, as a severe man. And now our service becomes severe. It becomes hard. It becomes stingy because we serve a stingy guy. He gives us stuff to do and he tells us to hop to it. And viewing Jesus that way will not sustain lifelong faithfulness. So here's the question. Is your service for Jesus stingy this morning? Are you a severe, grudging servant? Do you find yourself grumbling about the responsibilities he's given to you to serve him here? I think it's really easy to feel stingy on the morning that daylight saving starts. And we're in that point in the ministry year that can be tough slogging to keep going, to keep inviting folks to ministries, to keep working that evangelism relationship at your workplace or with a mom you know that really hasn't panned out like you'd hoped. You kind of don't want to get back in the game. It's tough slogging to keep gathering with the saints on Sundays, to keep giving financially, to keep coming out to community groups. It'll be lighter this week, praise God to keep serving in roles that you signed up for back in August? Or maybe it's not where you are in the year that has you feeling a little stingy, but where you are in your life. You're in a especially busy season or difficult season. Maybe there have been new health problems for you or relational problems for you in your family or uncertainty in your job. And when you're feeling pressed on all sides, it's easy to want to take your ball and go home, to take your money and hide it in a handkerchief. But the king who calls you to engage him is not harsh and demanding. He's not. 
He's a gracious king. He seeks and finds and saves. He gifts us and asks us to be faithful. And at the end of this age, he will invite us to share in his joy forever. So let's go on receiving him and serving him. And so be found in his kingdom at his return. Would you pray with me? Father, we do want to endure to the end. And if we're going to do that, we need to see your Son as gracious and merciful and glorious and loving and kind as he truly is. So would you give us the strength to comprehend together what is the height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we will love him and serve him to the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.